The following sermon comes from our current sermon series, The Whole Story, in which we will be looking at the need, the promise, the announcement, the plan, and the accomplishment. This week, Elder Mike Archbold will be teaching on the promise as told from Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 reads, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or is his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who gets their eggs dies. And from that is crushed, a viper is hatched. The webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness. But we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment so that they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. 
and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in 538 B.C., Cyrus issued a decree that allowed the Israelites to return to their homeland. In spite of the promises of the prophets and the urging of the priests, there was no mass exodus back to Israel. Many exiles had grown comfortable in Babylon and were unwilling to leave. Even the handful that did return faced a ravaged land, a city and temple in ruins and hostile neighbors. The glorious promises of a new future had not immediately translated into blessing and prosperity. So this is where I want you to uh, kind of perk up your ears a little bit here. So following the return from Babylon, the people faced a new crisis. With no city walls, marauding bands of outlaws threatened them. With no central government, there was little leadership and little means of enforcing laws. With no temple, religious life ebbed and flowed. Apathy, indifference, cynicism grew as the people began to lose sight of who they were as God's people. They began to be careless how they lived out being God's people. They began to doubt the future that God had promised. What I just read to you was about a people who were on the road of hopelessness. These people didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. They probably could not even see really the next day. There was no leadership, no religious leaders, no nothing. It was not a pretty sight. Now we see where they started. Let's see how they progressed to becoming a hopeful people. What do we put our hope in? Cars, spouses, jobs, hobbies, situations, girlfriends, boyfriends, fiancés, the list goes on and on. When we look at the first verse, we see that Isaiah says that God is not the problem of our hopelessness. So if God's not the problem, then who's the problem? We are, right? We're the problem. If we continue to read through the next uh, few verses, it paints a rather dim and bleak picture. We are the ones who push God away and enter into these dark times of sin. We are the ones who say, God is not listening to me. Well, that's wrong. It's not God's fault. It's our sin and our iniquities that have God at arm's length. Even when we do that, God never, never, ever, ever leaves us hanging. Verse 1 states, He is still powerful enough to be able to hear us and reach us even when we commit the most vile acts against him. I'm using a word like vile because sin is vile to our God. If you can pull it up slide number two for me, please. I have another definition for you, and that's iniquity. All right? Crookedness, pervasiveness, evil regarded as that which is not straight or upright, moral distortion. Okay? So, how do we get out of this vicious mess we're in? By having hope. Right? Yes, Mike, by having hope, right? So by having hope, of course, right? Well, that's why we have hope in our jobs, right? Well, because we know once we get that job, everything's going to be okay, right? Or maybe once I meet that boy or that girl, I'm going to be much happy, right? Or even when I get that better house or that better car, I'm definitely going to be much better off, right? So that's why we put our hope, okay? 
what I want to tell you is stop believing that lie you keep telling yourself. The only way you will be right and better off is by putting your hope in Christ Jesus. Period. That's it. Don't add, don't subtract from it. Why do we keep putting our hope in things that keep letting us down time after time? Hope is not an experience or a situation. If you can throw up the third slide for me. Paul Tripp states, hope is always an object and an expectation. So let me clarify my own words what that means. Hope is always in something. I hope I get that job. What you're really saying is, once I get that job, it'll make me really happy so I can do fill in the blank. For us married folk, when we first met our spouse, we said, I hope he or she likes me. Right? What we were really saying is, if he or she likes me, I'm going to feel really good, and he or she is going to make me really happy. We put hope in things and objects and then ask that object to give us something in return. Wrong thinking. These things are not bad by themselves. They can make you happy. But putting your hope in an object or in a person that is not Christ will lead you down a road you do not want to go. Hope is only found in Christ. All the things I just mentioned to you before have one thing in common. They can and will fail you. Girlfriends will fail. Boyfriends will fail. Jobs will fail you. Husbands and wives will fail you. Um, <laughs> the wonderful thing is that hope in Christ never fails us. I'll say it again. Hope in Christ never fails us. Everything else will. You can count on that happening. So I get to share a little bit about myself. I was like this in college. I partied and used drugs, and then when I graduated, what did I do? Partied and used drugs. I was always putting my hope in things that tore me down. I put hope in people who were hopeless, but what did I do? I kept going back. Well, why? Because I saw no real hope. In my broken state, I saw that drugs and partying and people provided some fix that, that I needed. Obviously, that was a bad move on my part. Not until God continued prying at my heart did I finally listen to what he was trying to tell me, and that was put those things aside and say yes to my gift of hope. I finally said, God, I will put my hope in you and you alone. Yes, I will give my life to you. Yes, I will love you with all my heart because I know you are the one that can save, and you are the one that can heal, and you are the one that can deliver me from a life of brokenness and despair and sin. I was so jacked up on the inside that only God could fix me. Nothing else. Stop telling yourself the lie that something else can do what God can. It's never going to happen. If you continue to seek that, you will continue to be distraught and broken. And you will never see the full glory and potential God has for your life. So stop today and turn your life over to God now. If you could put up the last slide for me. When life is hard and things are tough, where do you go for hope and comforting, right? So when life is hard and things are tough, where do you go for hope and comforting? In your darkest moment is when you show your cards as to where your hope lies. If it is in Christ, you'll lean on him when times are tough. If your hope is in anything else, you rely on those things, and as we know, those things are going to fail you. You might be successful for a bit, but in the long run, you will fail. Why do we put our hope in people who are just as jacked up as we are? All right? Why would a single man or a single woman put hope in someone who is not grounded in Christ? What can you expect to happen? But we do it constantly. 
It's a false hope that we fool ourselves with. If we look back at our text, uh, at verses 3 to 8, we get a picture of a people who are just plain messed up, who are living a life that reflects utter hopelessness. A picture of a people who are way off the path God has created for them. When we pick apart these verses, we see that once we are involved with sin, what does it do to us? It consumes us from our speech to our actions. Sin just doesn't affect one part of our lives. It affects every part of our lives. We see in verse 3, it affects our hands, our fingers, and our lips. We see it in verse 6, it affects their deeds, their actions. We see it in verse 7, it affects their feet and thoughts. <clears throat> what I'd like you to do is flip Flip back, right? Flip back to Isaiah 1, which should be on page 566. So flip back to Isaiah 1, which is located on page 566. 566, Isaiah 1. I'll give you a second to get there. Isaiah 1, page 566. I'm going to read from verse 12 to 20. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do, <clears throat> learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When we look at verse 15 of this, this text, it sounds like there is no hope. God is telling us that since we have been giving him less than our best, that when we come to him, he will turn away. Let's focus on what is less than our best. Not giving God everything. I'm going to say that again. What is less than our best that is not giving God everything? That's 100%. It's not just the aspects that we, we decide to give to him, not just our finance, not just our church stuff, not just our job things, not just this relationship with this person. It's everything. Not letting him reign over every aspect of our lives is a terrible mistake. We need to just relinquish control to God. But if we continue to look, at verse 16, he does give us instruction on how we can turn away from sin. Verse 16 states, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. In 18 and 19, he continues to give us hope that if we do turn from sin, we can eat the good of the land. If we turn to him, we can enjoy all that he has created. When we think back to Genesis, when God created the heavens and the earth, he said what? It was good, right? We get to partake in the goodness that God has created. Let's not miss this point. 
God is willing to allow us to eat of his land he created if we are obedient to him. Not to anyone and not to anything else. This could also mean putting our hope in other stuff. Let's flip forward back to Isaiah 59. 6.18 if you didn't remember. When we look at verse 5, it discusses the hatching of an adder's eggs. In case you are not aware of what an adder is, it is a venomous snake. The description states that it was um, rarely fatal. The bite should never, should however be taken seriously, and one should seek prompt medical attention if bitten by an adder. So I'm not sure exactly what rarely fatal means, but I will trust that if I do get bit, I will definitely seek uh, some type of attention. Um, the picture being painted here is that these people are just straight up sinning. They're not only sinning, but they are so caught up in their sin that their sin is just kind of regenerating more sin. It's like this, you know, vicious cycle of just badness. Just sin just kind of regenerating and, and just kind of circling around. No one is stepping up to say enough is enough. When we look at verses 7 through 8, let's read that. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. And they have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Two words to draw your attention to in verse 7. Run and swift. Notice, it didn't say briskly walk to evil, and they clumsily shed blood. No, the Israelites ran to evil and were quick to bring others along them in their sinning escapades. You could even say they were fast and efficient at sinning. When you are involved with sin, sin generally does what to you? You like it and you want more of it. You run to it, and usually what are the effects of sinning? People get hurt emotionally, physically, spiritually, financially. We usually leave a trail of what I would like to call sin, sin remnant behind us, Okay? Romans 3, 15 through 17 describes our sin and the path of destruction it leaves. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. How can we know peace when we are intertwined in sin? How can we lay a clear path to non-believers when we gossip just like they do? How can we build people up when we tear them down with our words? It's not possible. Once again, when sin and Satan seeks its teeth into you, it's hard for you to stop on your own. For people who are a chosen race, they have come a long way. They have come so far that some of them knew of the Christ coming, but continued on a wayward path. They've come so far that they can no longer be beacons of peace nor purveyors of justice. Their one straight path is now messed up. It's kind of... Um, once you, if you have a, who in here has a road bike, right? I, I guess old school, like 10 speed, right? If you think if you took your, <laughs> if you took your road bike and you went down like a mountain path, what would happen? Your bike would probably get jacked up, right? But we are talking about lives of humans and lives that should be seeking after Christ. They are so twisted in their sinful state, they, they can no longer be on the right path of glory. They can no longer be leaders. The second part of verse 8 we see when he says, no one treads on them knows peace. That's a very strong statement, and it's not something I would want described about me or our church family. It would be as if somebody said, hey, you know those MDC folks on Wood Street? They don't know peace. 
And if you do follow them and walk with them, you're not going to know it either. And your path, even though it might be straight, it's probably going to get jacked up now. Okay? The tone of this passage starts to change in verse 9. From finger pointing to an inward reflection. One commentary notes the change from the you to the us in the writing. Up to this point, Isaiah has been discussing how his people are just a sinful bunch, and because of their sinful state, they cannot accept and be prepared for the Lord's blessings. Justice is far from them. So, where do we receive our true justice from? We receive it from God. Where do we receive our righteousness from? Well, we receive it through Jesus' death on the cross. This verse is telling us this because they, being the Israelites, were such a sinful people, they ultimately were not prepared and ready to receive God's gifts. When we look at Matthew 13, 12, the same concept is reiterated. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Anyone who turns their life to Christ and accepts his free gift of salvation can enter into God's kingdom and receive all of the blessings due him or her. When we look at verse 10 and 11, it describes the effect of our sin. One of the commentaries describes this verse as a metaphor for moral confusion. I think it's a fairly accurate description of what was going on. So I'm going to read from verse 10. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. The Israelites are spiritually blind. They have no idea of the Messiah to come and obviously do not trust he is coming. They are completely dropping the ball. These people are so morally and spiritually dead and blind that a picture is being painted here. They are walking blindly as a blind man does searching for a wall. They stumble to see God even when he is being presented to them. Like a blind man stumbling at noon. Think again, right? I'm a visual person. So think midday walking past our church and just not seeing it. Like it just doesn't exist. That's what's happening to them. They were going along on their journey and God was smacking them in the face and they kind of just said, no, thank you. This can, and is it, this can and is us. We sometimes are so entrenched in our sin that we cannot even recognize when God's right with us. It can happen when we are so caught up with our own stuff, doing our own thing, we completely put God on the back burner. We say things like, I got this. I'm glad I handled that. Why didn't it work out the way that I wanted to? Sometimes we just need to step back and open, our, open up our eyes to what God is telling us. But how do we do that? Again, by saying yes to Jesus' free gift of salvation and also recognizing when God is working in our lives. I know you've heard the saying, let go and let, let God. The Israelites are recognizing that their actions have caused them to be hopeless. They are recognizing the effects of their actions and their sins. The growl of the bears and the mourning of the doves is a picture of hurting and anguish in verse 11. When a bear is hurt, it growls loudly. The moaning of a dove symbolizes many things in the Bible. But in this text, it symbolizes mourning. I hope we're getting a picture up to this point that the people are coming to realize that their sin was and is horribly destructive and is putting them at enmity with God. Remember, it's not God's fault when sin occurs. 
we realize the finger needs to be pointed directly at us. When we sin, we put God at arm's length from us. It's tough to be hopeful when we are in our sin. From the first verse in this chapter to where we are now is a big change. We started with finger pointing, and now we're at the point of accepting that we the people are at fault. Psalm 51.3 states, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. In our text in verse 12, Isaiah is stating that sin is being multiplied before you. They are finally at a stage where they are recognizing that their sin is speaking on behalf of them and progressing to the point of needing a savior. The second part of verse 12 states, And our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us. There is no separation from their sin. They are recognizing that their sin is a part of them, and what they are doing or not doing is a part of who they are. This is a complete mess. When we look at verse 14 through 15, we are seeing the direct result of their wayward goings. This is how we know things have gotten completely out of control. Sin has so thoroughly corrupted them that as a people, in verse 14, which we'll read, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. We're basically saying that anyone who would come to help and save you can't even come near you because of your wickedness. Not justice, not righteousness. It's so bad that when people do come to speak truth to you, they are turned away. Does this happen when we speak truth and love to people we know? I pray that every time we share the gospel with somebody, it's thoroughly accepted. But it doesn't happen every time. Well, why? Because lies, wickedness, falsehoods, and other words that you can think of is running rampant in our society. When this happens, it's tough to combat that. But thank God we did and do have Christ on our side that fought the ultimate battle between sin and death. I'm trying to think of a good example to share with you, and it would be as if I stood up in front of you this morning and started being heretical. I started teaching and preaching the complete opposite of what you know to be God's word. I would hope and pray that somebody would stand up, tackle me, scream, do something, try to quiet me, as hard as that may be, um, and and just kind of get me out of my, my stance, right? It would be as if you said, you know what? What I've been reading about God's word is wrong, and what Mike's saying sounds pretty good, okay? But if you flip that, that's exactly what was kind of going on in our text. They were so used to talking and acting with careless abandon that when truth came, truth had no foothold with them. When righteousness was presented, it had no foothold with them. As we progress through verse 15, truth is so foreign and at such an arm's length that not only will they not recognize the truth and justice, they will even hunt you down and get you for trying to get away. This kind of sounds like what my dad used to tell me when I was hanging out with my knucklehead friends. He used to tell me, birds of a feather what? Flock, Flock together. So what happens when one friend decides to do something wrong, right? My brother's nodding. He's heard that many times before, right? Uh, what happens when one friend decides to do something wrong? All friends try to convince the good one to do the wrong thing. They not only try to convince you, they badger you. They sweet talk you into doing the wrong thing, otherwise known as peer pressure, right? But this isn't just for our young people. This applies to us as, uh, as adults as well. When you make the break from sin, the devil just doesn't say what? 
nice having you for a little bit. I'll, I'll see you later, right? He comes after you full bore with everything in his arsenal. So how do we combat, or how we combat that is essential, and it can only be done with God's word. The Israelites are so messed up, but now there seems to be a change happening. After all this craziness and chaos, God decides to step in and says, what's been going on is not good. So let's take a look at verse 15. <clears throat> Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Their Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. In the bottom of my Bible, at the end of verse 15, it's translated, it was evil in his eyes. Not that he didn't like it, and not that it was not good, it was evil in his eyes. This is not where I want to be standing and having God's judgment upon me. He was judging all of us, but to those he has saved and redeemed by his blood, we can now be viewed God much differently. God now sees that what is happening is not good and that someone needs to do something about it. But who? God states that there was no man during all this mess to intercede for these sinful people. At the end of 16, we get the answer. His own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. I want to read that again. His own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. I think it paints such a, a strong picture that his own arm saved us. Not somebody else's arms, not anything else. His own arm saved us. This is kind of why I stand here, why you sit there. This is why we are called followers of Christ. He was the one at the request of his father who interceded for us. He took away our sins and washed us clean as snow. Without him using his own arm, we would be dead in our sins, looking to spend an eternity in hell, not having a light at the end of the tunnel. Thank God I don't ever have to experience that. I also want to add that he did this on his own. He is self-sufficient. He was not being upheld by someone else's righteousness. This was not accomplished by any human being either. We have hope. We don't have to be scared anymore. We don't have to worry, am I going to hell? We don't have to worry, what will happen to us when we, when we die? We have hope. And that person is Christ. At the end of John 3.16, it says what? Have eternal life. We have an anticipated eternal life. Not something we think might or can or should happen. It will happen for those who are his chosen people. If you have not put your trust in him to have assurance for your eternal salvation, stop waiting and say yes to his free gift today. Stop saying whatever it is you say to yourself and say yes. For those who are believers, reevaluate what you put your hope in and stop making excuses why you don't fully trust God. Recommit yourself to the hope that is found in Jesus. Stop believing those lies of Satan and listen to the truths of Jesus. Toward the ends of our, toward the ends of our, end of our chapter, we see a picture of God getting ready for war and also the results of God's action for getting ready for war. We recognize that the war being talked about here is sin and unrighteousness. God does not like sin and will do whatever is necessary to eradicate it. The last two verses of this chapter wrap things up nicely. So I will read it. Verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> and a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. 
My spirit that is upon you and my word that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. God has promised that a redeemer will come and will save these wicked people from their sins. I was one of those wicked people and God upheld his promise to me and sent his son to die on sins so my sins could be washed away. The promise he is talking about in verse 20, he talked about in verse 16. He's clearly laying the groundwork for the upcoming Messiah. Without the Messiah and without these promises, we would be dead in our sins and looking forward to an eternity in hell. But God loved us too much to allow this to happen for those he loves. We do have a light at the end of the tunnel. In verse 20, when it says a redeemer will come, we know it is Jesus. As Paul stated last week, if all we think of our Redeemer as a baby laying in the manger, we are missing the boat. Yes, he was a baby. And yes, he was born in a manger. But this is not the end of the story. This is just the beginning. Let me be very clear with you. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, who physically walked earth sharing the message of his father, preaching and teaching about his father, converting lost souls, healing the sick, comforting those that needed comforting, and ultimately gave of himself as a sacrifice to die on a cross for our sins so we could enjoy his father for eternity. This is hope. Hope is not in anything else. It's not in a human. It's not in a car. It's not in a job. It's not in anything you want to put before God. This is our light at the end of a gloomy tunnel. My prayer for you this morning is that you examine your heart. See what you place your hope in. Is it in stuff? Is it in the Christmas tree and the ornaments and like the shopping and the running around and the parties and the hot chocolate and all this other stuff? Or is it 100% in God? Not 50%, not 10%, not 99.9%, 100% in God. If it's not, Ask God to guide your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to direct you and direct your everything to him. Put that other junk to the side and pick up the cross where your hope is found. Amen? Let's pray. (sighs) Father God, just thank you so much, Lord, just battling through sickness, and it just doesn't even matter, Lord, because your word just means everything. Lord, we ask that we... We examine our hearts, Lord, and if our hope is not found in you or we're just, we need redirection, Lord, that you will use your Holy Spirit to redirect.